Hello and welcome. You're listening to Requires Improvement, a podcast that critically discusses all aspects of the UK education system. My name is Tom, and in today's episode, me and co-host Lauren interview London-based teacher and activist and organiser Andy Byrne. In a bit of a departure for our show, we'll be discussing the beautiful game, as Andy is part of Hammers United, an independent fans group dedicated to improving things for supporters of West Ham United Football Club. Hammers United successfully mobilised 8,000 fans on a protest march against the owners of West Ham in February 2020. If you are a new listener with an interest in West Ham or football more generally, welcome. Please rate and share our podcast and check out some of our previous episodes. To regular listeners with an interest in education, trade unionism and organising, we trust you will enjoy a really insightful discussion from Andy on how to build an inclusive, optimistic and sustainable movement and some of the pleasures and challenges of organising. For a discussion involving three West Ham fans born in the 1980s, we also managed to keep misty-eyed memories of the good old days to a minimum, with only one reference to Bovril. Whether you're a football fan or not, you will get a lot out of this episode. Enjoy. So, Andy, uh, welcome. Um, can we just start off with some general introductions, if you'd like to tell us a bit about yourself and who you are? Yeah, of course, mate. <coughs> you know I am. I'm a good friend of yours. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, no, my, my name's Andy. Um, I'm a member of Hammers United, uh, which is a supporters group at, at West Ham. Um, and I spend my spare time going to watch West Ham home and away and taking part in the supporters group as well with the simple aim of making things better for all West Ham United supporters. So, like, what what made you get into that in the first place? Like, what made you think that we need this supporters group? And what kind of drew you to even, like, start start going down that road? I think what made me personally get into it is I've got a little bit of an obsessive personality. So when I <laughs> when I start when I start getting into something, I kind of take it to an extreme. So um, I, I mean, football has always been a always been a passion of mine, and um, it's been a big big part of my life um, for as long as I can remember. Um, I started going home and away with West Ham when I was a teenager, um, and then I took a little bit of time out and decided to play on a Saturday instead. So I had about about 10 years when when I wasn't going to West Ham. Um, and it just so happened that when I went back to West Ham, they just moved to the Olympic Stadium. Um, and I found the experience um, from when I used to go in the early 2000s to when I returned in kind of 2016, 2017, um, I found the experience really different. Um Anyway, as I got as I got back into going to watch them again, I started to go um, regularly away from home again, and started to go back onto the same forums and in, you know engage in some of the conversations on those forums. Um, and through through conversations on forums and through kind of actions of my own, I, I ended up getting in touch with Hammers United shortly after they were formed. Not so much to offer my help, but just to offer um, some insight into something that I'd been speaking with the club about personally. They took a look at um, the correspondence that I had with the club and they just invited me to get involved. Um, and that was probably about uh, about a year and a half ago. And it's really just gone from there. That's amazing. Just You said about like when you got back into it was when uh, West Ham moved to London Stadium, obviously from the bowling ground, which, as we know, I mean, me personally, it's a place that I really miss. And it's got a lot of childhood memories attached for me um, because I grew up in East Ham. So just literally down the road, um, my dad used to do security guard in there uh, the odd Saturday when I was like 
in the late nineties. So I do remember like going there, he'd drop me off, he'd leave me in the disabled bit, um, in the, on right on the corner as well, it was class. And then he'd go and do his thing and then come pick me up at half time to get a pocket pie and a bovril. And then like, you know, and, and it was just like, those are my first like proper football experiences in my life. And I just wonder, like, the sense of community, like, it being there, Barking Road, Green Street, that area, the shops, the local community, at the bowling pub, you know, like, running around there when you're a kid with a lemonade or whatever. Like, I, I just wonder, what impact has that had, do you think, on on the supporters and the fans and the sense of community around it? I think... Um... I think people do look back at the bowling with um, with rose-tinted or perhaps with claret-tinted spectacles, um, <laughs> as you have as you've just done so eloquently. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I can I can honestly remember a time when I was a season ticket holder at the bowling, not particularly looking forward to going to the bowling um, because I I used to love the away games so much more. Um, I can remember games in the championship at the bowling and I was a season ticket holder in the Bobby Moore lower. And we, um, I can remember us sitting down because there wasn't, the Bobby Moore lower wasn't sold out. Um, and I can remember kind of looking around me and thinking, um, I was thinking, you know, it, it wasn't great at times, but, mm. um, so, so I do think there is a, there is a sense of, um, of nostalgia playing a part in this when people talk about the bowling. However, um, you know, I do also remember nights there like the Ipswich Town, uh, a kind of playoff, playoff game and, um, some, some of the atmospheres that, that I've experienced there that, that I don't think can be replicated at the Olympic Stadium. Um, and, you know, it's, it's no secret that the stadium move has been a bone of contention for a lot of West Ham fans, but I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think, um, I think first and foremost, I think fans feel like they've made a poor decision um, because I think a lot of people, a lot of people harbour regrets for not standing up for what might have been the right thing to do mm. at the time, which might have been to stay at the bowling and to expand mm. the bowling. I mean, I've got, I've got a program, or I did have a program. I actually got rid of all my programs, but. I had a programme from 2003, I think it was. And on the back of that programme, 2003, was an artist's impression of um, the bowling completed with the East Stand redevelopment done. Um, and it's kind of it's kind of sad to look at um, a stadium that could have been a 45,000 45, seat stadium that we could genuinely call home and that it never happened. Yeah. And so I think the first thing that people do is I think they they have a sense of disappointment in themselves um, for believing that the move to the Olympic Stadium was going to bring something that ultimately it wasn't. And I think people have come to the realisation that, you know, perhaps we will never be a top... I mean, I know we are right now, but perhaps <laughs> we will never be a, 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 top, a regular top four side. Perhaps we won't. And perhaps believing that the um, Olympic Stadium was going to bring us that you know kind of that promised almost I think people are annoyed with themselves for that and they beat themselves up about that um I also think there are genuine concerns that aren't based in nostalgia and that aren't based on people beating themselves up but I think it's hard to um it's it's hard to express those concerns in a meaningful way people talk about things like culture identity mm. relationships routines and which are all nice sound bites and they're all great words but um 
to pin those things down and to uh, and to get to the root of what people actually mean by those things is quite difficult and it's something that is almost almost intangible in in a fair in a fair few ways absolutely andy i kind of want to pick up on that point and i feel um absolutely quite rightly everyone should know the ins and outs of West Ham and they should have in their mind exactly the sights the sounds and the smells when we talk about the bowling and about the good old days and everything but I suppose I'm just thinking for our kind of broader listenership who might be working in education or have an interest in kind of trade unionism and politics I just kind of do want to take a step back and I think it fits with the point you're making there about those intangible things those those little things that you can't quantify you certainly can't put a monetary value on things like culture routine friends and family really so I just want to kind of start with a a really broad question for some of our listeners who are let's call them our our less cultured listeners who who don't appreciate football (laughs) why and and again to and again to answer some of our absent co-hosts too when I raised the suggestion of this interview why football why is football important Andy I think there is a big question to answer around that Tom and I think it's um I think this really gets to the crux of why our group is in existence because football in the simplest sense is important because you want your team to win um and football becomes important to you because you enjoy the game and you want your team to win but like so many things in life when it becomes more than just um just a fleeting interest when it becomes um when it turns into a hobby or even into a lifestyle or even into a culture it becomes so much more than just the game itself and the result itself and that really is why you know Hammers United finds itself in existence because you can have um you can have enjoyable times when your team is winning and you can have frustrating times when your team is losing if your connection to football is purely one where you are um, just going to ride off the results on the pitch and that is going to dictate your emotion from day to day, once you start to to look at the, the football fan as, as somebody who is um, engulfed in that in the same way as people get engulfed in, in other hobbies and other lifestyles and other you know other practices and areas of their life, you then bring in all these other things about really what I mean, I've done a lot of thinking on this and really what I bring it back to is almost like basic human needs. Like, you know, we've all seen in this pandemic the the need to socialise. Yeah. And one of the mm. one of the big things around a football club is socialising. People talk all the time about essentially it forces them to get out of the house. They might just be going round to their friend's house to watch the game or they might just be on their phone talking to their friends about the game. They might be meeting in the pub before the game, but it, it actually starts to fulfil some of those basic human needs. You've got a real sense of tribalism. You've got a sense of pride over where, you know, you or your family originates from. You've got a sense of togetherness over a common cause. You know, you've got um, a sense of camaraderie. You've even got things that are almost church-like when you're singing together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, uh, it, you know, it, it's um, so... Really, what, what what we talk about at Hammers United is is almost, in a strange way, everything but the football itself. That's amazing. Like, I, sorry, I just thought it was a really beautiful answer. Um, and also, like, mm. what you were talking about with the whole culture thing, the one thing that I always think as well about football and why it's easy to vilify football fans is football is very much a working-class sport. You know, like, 
you think about tribalism in a lot of other sports that are maybe quite inaccessible to, you know, people from working class or lower income backgrounds. Like to play football, all you need is a football, basically. You need a football and a couple of jumpers as goalposts and like anyone can like get into it. Whereas, you know, I think a lot of, and this for me is, it's quite easy to vilify football fans to have this kind of cartoon archetype of football fans, um, which I think it's really important as well to get the message that actually as you say football is is a culture it is it's actually there's a lot around it that's not just you know hooliganism which is something we can talk about later in the relationship that West Ham has had in the past to that which we can't like ignore and but yeah for me like I I teach kids who come from predominantly working class backgrounds and I just think that it's it seems to be another way to sort of paint these almost like rubbish their culture like rubbish a part of their identity and I I just think that's a really interesting point and and I just I wonder if that's something that you feel like do you ever feel any snobbery coming from maybe the people some of the people that you're dealing with sort of higher up in the sort of hierarchy of of the club like when you're engaging with them we do in terms of um it's an easy brush to to tar people with when you when it suits you so um if uh, you know if and i i say this humbly about myself but if relatively intelligent football fans are trying to construct um a uh, a dialogue about a direction that they think is best for their club it's easy to tarnish those football fans as um a rowdy mob you know relatively intelligent football fans are Organising, which is no mean feat, as you guys will probably know, organising a peaceful protest. It's easy to tarnish those football fans as as a mob of hooligans. And I think um, I think that hooliganism exists for two reasons. One is the connection to the club and that tribalism that you've talked about. And it's ironic how that tribalism exists on a national level when fans who are um, who are at each other's throats on a Saturday will be arm in arm, <laughs> and, you know, when they when they travel abroad. Um, <laughs> You know, which essentially tells us that we're all the same. Um, <laughs> but I, I think also it exists because of the emotion that you have within the game. And I think I think the emotion that exists in football, it, and it's another reason that it draws people in, is is unique and is different to every other sport. Um, and I think you've seen this. You've seen this played out through the introduction of VAR. So the emotion that exists in football and the moment of a goal going in is so intense and is so unique that you get almost hooligan-like behaviour. And so it's easy to, to kind of tarnish people in... People are, people are having a genuine a genuine ecstatic moment. People are having a, a release, mm. you know? It's almost like a mosh pit or something. And you would, you'd look at that mosh pit and you'd say, oh, it's a bunch of hooligans. But there, there's, a gen, there's a genuine ecstasy going through somebody's body when a goal goes in. And you don't get that moment of ecstasy or that moment of release in other sports because the accumulation of points is such that there is no um, one moment in the game where the whole game hinges on that split second where the ball hits the back of the net. You know, you take any other sport and you're unlikely to see a succession of one nils. Um, and this is why I believe, you know, a complete tangent, but this is why I believe VAR is is not right for football because you're taking away the 
reason in many cases that people go to the game and that people travel all of these miles, all they're traveling for, a lot of them, is a one moment of ecstasy that they can share with other people and celebrate. You take that away and you, you kind of lost, you know, you've lost a lot of the essence of, uh, uh, you know, the beauty of the game itself. Yeah, absolutely, Andy. I think, yeah, you've put it really, really well, that kind of that Trans, the transcendent power of just that that moment and you're right and I mean yeah I, I've bored you to tears with my with my very detailed opinions on VAR and why it is the <laughs> death of football but yeah I think you talked a lot about like the culture and the emotions and the important stuff but I think the reason why I wanted to interview at this specific moment because I think it is it's an interesting one because I think, yeah, what uh, what I like about Hammers United and that kind of their reason for existing and how they organise is Again, I think a lot of football fans are just painted as moaners. And I know there's like another one of those new phenomenons is of uh, kind of fans TV where we'll just moan about results on the pitch. And there's all this like hyperbole of like when a team's had a bad, a bad game, it's like it's all doom and gloom and it's all going to shit. I think what's interesting for those who are, who don't follow football and are listening is that West Ham are incredibly successful at the moment. Currently, as we speak, they are fourth in the league. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose in a roundabout way is if the results are good, what is it that you are moaning about? And I think when you talk about VAR, I think what you're getting at is the problem, which is what football is like today. So, yeah, I suppose my question, Andy, is what is wrong with, with modern football specifically? Why does Hamish United exist? I, I, before I answer that, it'd be good to, just to pick up on that, that terminology that you've used there and the difficulty that our group has faced, actually with being classed as, or, or tarnished by being up by certain people at certain times as moaners. I mean, if we talk about the, the situation at West Ham specifically, you had a group that came before us, the Real West Ham Fans Action Group, and they, um, they harnessed a lot of, um, you know, I guess in politics you would describe it as populism. Um, and and they, ha- harnessed a po- they harnessed a, a, a populist view and that populist view essentially was one of negativity. Um, however, I, d- I don't think there's any denying that um, English people and certainly football fans who have an emotional connection to their club like sometimes to take the stance of um, the underdog, the the, the downtrodden, uh, you know, the uh, almost the moaner. Um, and I, I do think that, you know, we, we had to be very conscious of this at Hammers United because you'll get more supporters, I think, being the Mona. Um, and, you know, the Real West Ham fans action group grew much quicker than we did. And they actually grew to a bigger size than we are now. They got almost 20,000 members. I think we're at about 17,000 at the minute. Um, so it's, in a way, it's kind of an easier position to be in to be the moaner. And if you look at politics, you look at the the populism, if you like, for the um, for the shadow minister, whoever is the shadow minister, they often will find themselves in a more in a more popular position than the than the, the minister themselves, because the, the shadow minister really can just criticize and can, and can get everyone, you know, everyone from around them saying, yeah, fantastic. You're pointing out what the others are doing wrong. And so that's why at us, as, us at Hammers United, we we have undoubtedly gathered support from people who take 
not necessarily enjoyment, but from people who will certainly rally behind a call for destructing something that is in place. So a call for for change, but but more than change, a call for almost a vilification or or um or, or you know a, a crucifixion almost of the people who they hold responsible for the wrong direction that that you've taken. So actually when we um when we began as a group we didn't start out with a position of criticism of anyone so we started out as a real slow burner i think as a group we started out with one um simple aim and that was just to engage the football club in dialogue about all of the things that we've spoken about really the, the dialogue was 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 going to kick off with communication so what is your communication as a club between the supporters and then the dialogue was going to look at um what can we do together to try to improve all of the points that are being mentioned that relate to the culture and the experience and the family and all of the things we've talked about we actually peddled that you know particular rhetoric and and and, and stuck with that path for about a year um but we kept getting knocked back from the club um the club's standard answer was if you if you want to engage in dialogue you join our construct the one that we've created and you're welcome to come and have a seat at a table at the construct that we own and that we run and our members are very clear um we want independent dialogue where we can represent ourselves as we see fit and we don't want to be told what's on the agenda and what we can and can't say outside of meetings however that that got to a point where um we didn't really see ourselves with any option but to join what was already an existing movement which is now kind of attributed to us as a movement which is um the hashtag gsb out is used um and gsb out stands for gold brady and sullivan who are uh, current custodians at west ham and who who many west ham fans believe um need to leave the club before anything changes and so it was actually a conscious decision for us to join that movement a year into our existence um off the back of really a position of being wanted to be seen as a progressive and forward thinking group rather than a group who was um whose agenda stopped at removing something or destructing something however we now find ourselves in a position today where you know we have come around to the opinion that actually perhaps it is going to be difficult for us to achieve what we want to achieve without first removing or destructing what we need to remove or destruct but it, it, there's a balance in trying to be you know trying to be ready um uh, to to be progressive as soon as that happens that's i'm just thinking of the parallels for what we're going through as um sort of people in the trade union movement um the idea that actually you know be, you want to build something you want to campaign you want to make things better for everybody for all of your members all of the people that are in your group and on all of their interests um however you as you say the custodians and the barriers and the narrative and, and the sort of small framework at which you are allowed to work where it be you know Hammond united or a trade union um organization um so 
it just it just really strikes me that the parallels between the two and actually like I would say that you know for me as someone who works in education the biggest barriers to achieving the progressive change that I want to see on the ground in my classroom for my kids for my for myself as well in my job are things like Ofsted the DOV and those sort of fundamental things that have to change you have to sort of get rid of that before you can actually then enact the sort of positive as you say progressive change that you want that's going to make things better for you know for, for educators and mostly for the students um and i just thought it was really interesting as you were talking i was like god you could just substitute in <laughs> various organizations and words to sort of get the the same yeah the same sort of struggle yeah i think we um we often get criticized actually for um for being uh, negative so people often misinterpret the campaign that we are on as a negative one, whereas in actual fact we see ourselves as progressive. Um, we often the, the question often gets posed to us: Well, isn't this just the world that we've got to accept? And so people don't that. actually argue. <laughs> They, they won't argue against it. You know, we will say, look, we, we'd love a change in ownership. We'd love things to be done better. People will actually say, yes, 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 yes. We completely agree, but you're never going to make it happen. So why bother? And then the final thing that we get is we get a reference to almost a strange um, juxtaposition that you find yourself in being a fan of a football club because you are you are not an ordinary customer for want of a better phrase, who is able to um, move to a more progressive brand, you um, you are duty bound to give your full unconditional support and money and custom to the brand that you are also trying to, in a certain way, break down before you can build it up. So yeah, there's kind of three um, hurdles that we often come up against are um, how can you support the team? and want to make change you know what's the point you're never going to bring it about anyway and then well actually why don't you just be happy aren't you just moaning about stuff oh my god you could literally be just saying what a teacher's saying that's so <laughs> exactly. weird like, absolutely. It's like absolutely. exactly the stuff that we hear every single day because <laughs> the thing i want to i want to bring it back to i think yeah and no. i I think absolutely. I think we've all kind of heard that, that fatalism and things being presented to us as a fate accomplice. This is just the way it is. And yeah, I've, I've never really thought of it until until just now. But you can see the parallels and that, that feeling of being alienated, like as a teacher, you know, you're in the classroom, you're having great, wonderful moments, you have beautiful, amazing interactions with kids. There's days when you are on top of the world, but there's always something kind of nagging in the back of your mind. This doesn't quite feel right or this could be better. There is a better model for doing it there are issues fundamental issues that need to change and issues with with the culture and yeah and again you think that attitude of things being presented to you is like this is just the way is it it is there is no alternative things will never change and i think what is uh obviously i am a west ham fan myself as the three of us here are <laughs> but i think west ham is interesting because we've talked about the problems with modern football we've talked about var i think west ham reveals something very like specific about the problems with modern football and we've kind of you mentioned it a little bit but for the listeners who don't know is that west ham played um in the stadium, the bowling ground, also called Upton Park. I don't know which is the actual name. Andy, you'll definitely know it for sure. It's actually the bowling, is its official name. 
the officially the bowling ground and we were there from what the 1920s up until about 2015 and then we moved to our brand spanking shiny new stadium a kind of slightly repurposed refitted olympic stadium with a, with the big running track around it and that was kind of sold to us as Oh, it's the cliches they used as taking West Ham to the next level. And yeah, I think you talked about that, Andy, about like the fans feeling about if fans who, who bought into it. And I was um, at the time had a season ticket at the bowling ground and I, I never for a second bought into it. I knew it was going to be crap. I knew it was not the way forward for West Ham. And you talk about the next level being being one of the big clubs, you know, like the Liverpools, the Man Uniteds and all that. I never really had had an interest in that. I think I was interested in in the culture, in the sense of community around it. Like I, I follow this football club because my, my dad followed that football club. I, I go to the football club because my friends go and watch the same the same football club as me. I was happy supporting a sometimes okay, often not very good football team. <laughs> and then to just kind of have that ripped away from me and have that whole culture like deracinated and literally picked up and transplanted and moved four or five miles up the road was was yeah quite upsetting for me and yeah I I can at least say I never bought into the hype and the bullshit around it but at the same time I felt I had absolutely no means to stop it happening it was presented to us as this is going to happen whether you like it whether you like it or not so I mean, yeah. What I'm interested in now is kind of how Hammers United recognise that we're in that kind of interesting position. We are we are presented through modern football as we're just these individual consumers of a product, and we see it even more now when we can't physically go to games. Multi academy trusts. Yeah, well, quite. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I mean, yeah. I think I've kind of lost my point a little bit, but yeah. What what does West Ham reveal specifically about modern football? And more importantly, we are where we are. What can we do about it? I, I think um, I think it comes down to the intentions of the owners. Um, and I'll, I'll speak a little bit more about, about what Hammers United can do about intentions of owners. But I will give, you know, I will give people who are listening some specifics of the types of things that we're talking about. Um, so... There are, there are specific changes that could be made relatively easily to, to bring some of that culture that we had with us. Um, West Ham didn't always play at the bowling ground. They played at the memorial grounds before that. And so at some point, the bowling ground was a new ground. You know, in the 19, you know, 20s, whenever it was, we moved to the bowling ground and that was a move to further the development of the club. Now, I'm sure that in the 1920s, the move wasn't received in the same way that the move to the Olympic Stadium was received. And I think it's about intentions of owners and I think it's about certain specifics. And we talked earlier about things like culture and what do we actually mean by that? So, for example, when West Ham moved to the Olympic Stadium, the the local sellers and businesses based around the, the bowling ground were given... I will say a promise um, that they would be able to transfer the location of their stalls, their their cafes, their pubs, and they'd be able to, to set up um, outside the Olympic Stadium. And the, the the fact of the matter is, they can't do that because, well, there's a, there's a number of stakeholders involved, and it doesn't suit any of their interests. You've got Delaware North who do all of the catering; it wouldn't suit their interests to have a private business on the island. You know, you've got um, the 
the club themselves, they, they don't seem to have any vested interest in it and that comes back to the owner's intentions. And then you've got the people who own who own the land and it doesn't suit their interest either. The one, ironically, the one interest it might suit is Newham Council and then you probably kind of sits in conversations that you guys have as well about things that councils could maybe do a little bit more of. Yep. Um, but you look at, you know, you talk about people as well and you, you have famous, you know, you've got Nathan's Calf, you've got, um, sorry, Nathan's Pie and Mash, you've got Ken's Calf, you've got um, the guy who sold, I think it was Gary, was it, Overland and Sea, never made it across to the, to the Olympic Stadium and those kind of things are, are culture. You've got, I mean, something that is, a, that is a really, really minor thing that you could fix tomorrow, they changed the badge and, you know, <laughs> if you want an, an example of what fans look to as an identity for a football club things like the name the colours and the badge are pretty solid examples of what fans consider to be their identity and again it's an intention of the owner the intention is to change the badge so that you can get you can draw in new custom and that, and you're not really understanding the you know who your customers are if you're looking to draw in new custom um things that you could do with the stadium i mean they they employ or they don't employ, because that is the point, they don't employ them. But you mentioned earlier stewarding. You know, the stewards are not employed by the club. So the stewards don't have the same camaraderie or the same understanding of the supporters or even the same support for the supporters. They don't have the same investment in their job as you had at Upton Park. Um, but to talk about what Hammers United could do about those things, um, I think what you what you have to do as a as a supporters group or as an influencer from the ground up is you have to be able to have a, have a genuine word in the ear of the people who are driving the capitalist side of the organization that you're talking about, because we live in a capitalist society and I'm not under any impression that um, Hammers United could step in and take ownership of the football club. Uh, I'm not under any impression that the football club will ever be run by somebody who has the same um, stance, viewpoint, emotional connection as Hammers United. But what I think is is important for Hammers United to be able to portray um, and what is important for Hammers United to be able to stress to, I believe, new owners, because I believe these owners are... are have gone too far I don't believe they I don't believe they will change their spots and I don't believe their intentions can be changed but what what we would need to stress to new ownership is we understand that what you are doing when we ask you to do these things is a is to a certain extent bravado is to a certain extent window dressing okay so I always use the example of McDonald's McDonald's used to have um uncomfy seats and the logic behind having uncomfy seats was that they were a, fa a fast food chain. So the logic behind having uncomfy seats is you get more people through the tills quicker, they sit down for less time, and they sod off quicker so that someone else can sit down and buy another McDonald's. McDonald's have since changed their strategy to have comfy seats. Now, the comfy seats are designed still to make more money. So you are still you are still at the hands, if you like, or at the mercy of a capitalist enterprise. You are still living in a capitalist society where, let's be honest, what is governing the decisions is money. However, the intention of the owners of McDonald's in changing the seats to comfortable seats was to put the 
inverted commas, put the customer first. Now, we all know that the benefits that the customer is receiving from those comfy seats are not benefits that the owner is sitting at home going, I'm so happy that my customers can sit in comfy seats now. I'm really, I can, I can sleep easy at night because <laughs> McDonald's, because McDonald's customers, when they come into my restaurants, they have a nice time. I can really sleep easy at night now. <laughs> The, the owner who put comfy seats in is saying, do you know what? This is improving the brand of our company, customer satisfaction. We're growing. We're probably making more money. But the benefit to the customers is the same. They still get to sit in the comfy seat when they walk in. And so Hammers United's position would be to new owners, look, we know you don't really care. We know you want to make money. We understand that you um, that we will come back and we will spend our money no matter what because we have an emotional connection. However, if you were to do these certain things that would improve the customer experience, you may just find that you get a better product, a better brand, a better business at the end of it. And if you look at a club like Dortmund, who I always refer to as well, part of their brand, their image, part of what they sell is their connection with their supporters. And that is something that you could actually exploit and sell if you were business savvy enough to to listen to essentially advocates who will work for free, you know, on behalf of your business. Yeah, and absolutely. I think that's a really interesting point. And I think what is interesting about West Ham is just how almost spectacularly tone deaf the owners of the club are and how it's almost in some ways they seem to go out of their way to piss off and alienate the fan base. And yeah, I think I did feel a bit wistful you like mentioning some of the old businesses around the old stadium. And again, to an outsider, it might not seem like much or it's just, oh, it's just a fanzine or an old pub. But I think to get to the heart of what you're talking about and this emotional connection is it that was a way of life for thousands and over the years, hundreds of thousands of people that has... It's childhood. That has been destroyed. And it's sort of, yeah, you can you can mock and vilify football fans for that. But that, that emotional connection, it's really deep and it's friendship and it's family. And yeah, I mean, it, it's depressing to say, but yeah, a, a relatively savvy owner of a capitalist enterprise that a football club could follow a model like a big club in Germany like Dortmund and do it in a way that is that is sustainable and mutually beneficial like Dortmund have what 80,000 90,000 a week they, they make loads of money from their fans but the fans are <laughs> the fans are on board um, could you talk a little bit Andy about um, the kind of the specific organisations of kind of football football fan groups more generally and other kind of football fan groups that have existed around West Ham and why why Hammers United is perhaps a more sustainable, more progressive, more long-term model than some of the others that do exist? It's, um, yeah, it's difficult to do this without being critical of, of other fans groups and I, I don't want to be critical of other fans groups. So I'll try and, I'll try and put this in as, in as dip, diplomatic uh, way as I can um, I think West Ham and football clubs in general particularly more in inverted commas successful football clubs are a hard bunch to please because of the level of passion that exists across the fan base so the decisions that you make are going to be controversial decisions they are going to split opinion 
because people feel so passionately about the right direction for their football club. So to bridge that divide and to get people putting in the same direction without being critical of anyone who's tried to do it before is a serious challenge. Um, and I guess it's been our kind of mantra, if you like, at Hammers United to try to consistently maintain the moral high ground, to try not to get drawn into um, debates, not to get not not to get drawn into debates, but to try not to let our emotion cloud those debates. Um, to try to step back and take a slightly more philosophical view of the situation. Um, always to listen to our members. Always, you know, to to, to try and to try and um, any stance that we take, we 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 will be very clear that that is the stance of our members and not just the opinion of a few individuals on the committee. Um, but hard work, mate, really. Like we, you know, we, at the minute, because we are um, in a position where we're, we're hoping soon to get um, to get an independent committee stood up um, that will be in dialogue with employees at the club to, to, to work on things that we're talking about. We're on daily, we're on daily calls at the minute. Um, and it's, um, it's tough. Like you, you have to give up a lot of your time and people are very quick to criticize. They don't see the time and the effort that you, that you give up. And so I think, um, it's very easy for fans groups to fall down because people from the outside looking in will say, well, what have you done this for? What do you make that decision for? Well, what? And they don't, they don't realize the time and the effort and the amount of times that you've bitten your tongue and the unity that you're trying to bring and the positivity and the direction that you're trying to go in. Um, and so, you know, without, um, at the same time as not criticizing other fan groups without trying to blow Hammers United's trumpet too much, I think we've got a group of people on the committee who are exceptionally level headed and intelligent and patient, um, but also people that have a genuine connection with the people that we're trying to represent. And they have friends and people that they still, you know, will go to, to football with. They're still. Uh, one of us, so to speak, if you know what I mean. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a difficult um, balance to try and strike, and especially with such an emotive an emotive subject. Um, I, I do think, and I will come back to my earlier point. I do think what helped us grow as a group was a couple of big gambles where we decided to ride on existing sentiment. So we knew the GSB Out movement was popular. You know, we didn't adopt it from the start. We decided to, to, to push for dialogue. But when we felt the time was right, we thought we would, we thought we would, you know, back it and join it. And we almost kind of lead it now. Um, and that was a big call to, to join that and to back that. Um, but because we took our time, we felt we'd done it for the right reasons. And similarly to protest, it's never an easy call to, to, to call a protest. You know, what if 10 people showed up? You know, what if, um, you know, we, we managed to get eight and a half thousand and it's one of the biggest that's ever been done in, you know, since the formation of the Premier League. And, you know, what if no one showed up? What if, what if there was violence and arrests at the protest? What if the protests carry on inside the ground? So, yes, a lot of patience and a lot of, um, a lot of hard work, but also some difficult calls that, you know, we're just lucky and they went with us.
So, mate, so, yeah, you're talking about, about protests there. So what what do you think made that protest so successful? What do you think that you did as a group that really got your members, your membership on board and willing to actually to take that action? I think, um, I think in the build-up to the protest... It was, uh, in terms of getting numbers, it was very much about clarity of the messaging and people seeing our group as a credible group. So um, we were ultra conscious. Every single person we spoke to, every single forum we went on, every single call we put into anyone, every single email we sent, every single publication we put out, we were ultra conscious that that had to be professional, credible, trustworthy something where people could look at it and say do you know what there won't be trouble here i will bring my family to this this is a properly run event you know this has been organized with the police it's outside the stadium and so i guess in terms of getting people to make the decision to go it was all about messaging and positioning in the build-up to that protest in terms of the what made the protest ex- itself a success this is still a real it, it it's a it's a real interesting topic at West Ham because there are elements of the support who are at two extremes at a scale. So some will say, how dare you ever call a protest? Um, you should support our team and do nothing else. This has got nothing to do with you. Um, you are affecting the team negatively by calling a protest. Now, lucky for us, nothing happened inside the ground and the team have won and drawn on the two protests that we called. That's just good luck. Um <laughs> And at the other end of the scale, there are people who are saying, basically, why didn't you set the ground on fire? Like, what are you doing? Why have you why have you stopped outside of the ground and done a few speeches and then walked away? Why haven't you gone in there and got in their face and really let it be known how you feel? And the answer to both of those two um, extremes is the same, really. The answer is that we felt that the way to make the process successful was simply to conduct it in such a way that enough people would turn up. And that was really all we wanted was enough people that would turn up. We knew if we could get enough people to turn up, the press would then cover the protest. And once the press covered a protest, you get your messaging out there. We could have had 20,000 people causing mayhem in the ground and our message would have been ignored because... You know, all they would have covered was the riot and we could have had five people walking peacefully with placards down the road and our message would have been ignored because it's only five people. So, you know, the answer to both extremes was get the numbers and the hope and the press will report what we're saying. Amazing. Absolutely. And we, Good work. And we talk about what, yeah, well done. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> well work. done. That's, that's amazing numbers. Yeah, I wasn't on that protest, but I saw the pictures. It was, it was fantastic work. And I think, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. It's about, it's about numbers, isn't it? It's about building, building massive majorities. Yeah. I mean, the whole people will pick in your argument all the time is you don't represent that many people. It's just you. No one else, no one else believes what you're saying. When you all of a sudden get eight and a half thousand people turn up who, who are there purely to back your message, you, you know, that kind of that argument falls down a little bit. And also like what that's going to do for like people who may have not wanted to join, but and also they feel validated, like all the people that feel the same that weren't there now feel validated and now probably feel a, a more of a solidarity for Hammers United and probably feel themselves more able to get involved uh, that's yeah that's kind of that's actually um ironically played out in um 
the personality of our of our chairman, who um, uh, you you may or may not know um, at the the Burnley game, which was one where um, for people listening, there was protests organised and cancelled at the last minute, and um, this was kind of three years ago now, I think. Um, yeah, it would have been March 2018, before we were in existence. Um, our pro, our chairman, our current chairman, didn't feel validated, and he didn't feel that he had a, a, a part in a movement or a say or a or anything or any constructive way of of protesting. And so, what he did was he grabbed the corner flag and ran to the middle of the pitch. And you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he was um, he was he, he was in many, in many quarters, you know. By the two extremes, he was vilified by some people and he was held up as a hero by others. But the messaging from that day never got out. It got All that got out was pitch invasions, trouble at the ground. And I think that is because people didn't feel, didn't feel that they had a voice or didn't feel validated. Now, you look at him three years later and he is, you know, a mediator on all of our Zoom calls now. You know, he sits back calmly and listens to everyone conducts votes, tells everyone to stay in line, tells people to be well behaved, you know, and it's just ironic that this is the very same person who was driven to the point of invading the pitch is now, you know, sitting back and and mediating this whole thing. Um, Talking about things like getting fans involved, so obviously the past reputation of West Ham United fans and certainly the most visible ones have like, if you think about certainly the eighties, late eighties sort of, you know, the firm, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, how much of that legacy, I'm not saying it's a legacy in like a positive way or anything like that, but how much of that, how much of that still do you think, does that have any influence on on the way that West Ham fans are viewed and maybe um, supporters groups are viewed? Because I can just think of it as like, again, I'm talking it from like, if I was talking about a trade union movement as maybe you know, militancy and things like that, you know, and do, do does that still have a hang up and does it still influence sort of maybe certain decisions or certain people and, and is that something you have to sort of deal with and get over I think it does I think it absolutely does but I think the only way you can deal with it because you're not going to get rid of it the only way you can deal with it is to prove your credibility with every single interaction that you have and it's um you, you know we've kind of come full circle now in the eyes of the club so um I remember first joining, we would write to the club to request dialogue and to ask if we could speak on behalf of our members. And I'm sure that at that time, their opinion of us was probably quite a derogatory one. Um, You know, we have a chairman who has been, who is now serving a football banning order because he's invaded the pitch. So (laughs) if you want, uh, you know, if you want a... um, a, a real life example of what you could call hooliganism. You've got one right there. Somebody's run onto a football pitch and it's an illegal act. And that is, that is a hooligan esque thing to do. And so, you know, their opinion of us at that point in time was, was probably one that we can shun these people and we can just tell them to, to go away and they won't ever build up any momentum. But with the actions that we've taken and the credibility that we've maintained, we're now in a, in a complete reversal where the club are um, keen to, established talks with us as, a, as an independent supporters group and it's um it's taken two years um but I think slowly you may not be able to break the stereotype as a whole but I think slowly you can break the stereotype of your group 
if you can be seen in a positive enough light in, in all of your interactions. Brilliant. Also, sorry, I just suddenly, what I said earlier, I just want to make it completely, completely clear to any listeners, I'm not equating union militancy with football hooliganism. <laughs> I just want to make that really, really clear because that is not what I think. <laughs> but I, I'm just talking... Whatever, whatever gets results, eh? Yeah. <laughs> but like, do you know what I mean? I'm just talking about in terms of like people that may perceive that in a certain way and then maybe be put off by getting involved or yeah or yeah sorry just need to make that really clear completely if you're gonna if you're gonna be yeah if you're gonna be successful you've got to have a broad appeal completely yeah and I think and again a, a similar another massive overlap between the work you're doing with Hammers United and the work of trade unions is about how is Hammers United like we've talked a little bit about kind of the fan base in general and the popular perception and we all know what we think when we think of football fans we think male um and we think white and we think straight. Um, how is Hammers United uh, in- actively inclusive to, to women supporters, black supporters and, uh, and LGBT supporters? We've had this discussion a few times on our committee, actually. Um, we've decided that the best um, stance for us to take is purely just to push an open church whenever we can. So if we're ever involved in any interactions around um, minority groups or any interactions around our stance on anything like like you're mentioning, we have a kind of stock response, which is we're we're an open church and we want to welcome everyone, you know, from from all backgrounds and and from all groups. Um, however, for for right or for wrong, there are. Um, groups that exist at West Ham who do represent those um, those minorities. So we do have um, BAME Hammers. Uh, there's a Disabled Supporters Board. Um, there's actually Any Old Irons. So a group for um, a group for people who are uh, of a certain age. Um, we we made the decision as, as Hammers United to not to split our group um, by demographic, but just to kind of welcome everyone that we possibly can and that also goes for welcoming people of different points of view because there are some quite polarized points of view among um let's call them influencers at west ham um essentially it boils down to people who are kind of on the side of the owners and people who aren't um and we're keen to like you know talk to them and and, and welcome them in the same way that we would um people who are part of, of any group um with reference to the supporters committee that i mentioned what um what we are part of creating at the minute is um, is a committee where all West Ham fans groups that are in existence come together um, and sit on one committee under one memorandum of understanding that is um, accepted by the club and dialogue is channeled through that committee that includes all of the groups that are currently recognised by the Football Supporters Association. So Hammers United will sit alongside those groups and each group has equal representation so something that Hammers United put forwards can be outvoted by by Bame Hammers and Pride of Irons and any old Irons, um, you know, if, if their members don't feel the same way. So I guess us as a, us as a group, um, we don't have those, um, I don't think you call them fractions, we don't have those sections perhaps, um, but we, you know, we are about to embark on a journey where we sit equally alongside all of those um explicitly represented sections in the fan base that's really positive like one of the things obviously you know quite personal to me is like women's football certainly becoming a much bigger sort of you know much more widely watched and much more widely supported and you know let's face it our women are doing way better than our men right now like nationally certainly like 
you know, with a lot of successes. And, you know, it's really positive to know that, you know, and, and yeah, for me personally, you know, as, as a girl, and I know someone, my, one of my friends actually went to play for West Ham ladies, um, and did really well. Um, have you noticed uh, the difference? Like, have you noticed more, um, like female females on the board have you noticed more more women especially since the emergence of of you know female, uh, women's football becoming a big a bigger deal basically is that something that you've noticed i think uh, i think across our membership we have although sadly on our committee we only have one woman on the uh, on the committee at the moment so um it's not that we've turned anyone away <laughs> we just haven't had um we haven't had any 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 women wanting to uh, wanting to step up and, um, and and be part of it at that level. Um, there are there are women on the um, uh, who are on the supporters committee that we're that we're um, uh, being part of, and actually some of the other supporters groups are, are headed up, um, chaired by by women. And I, I, you know, um, again, without wanting to bring any any kind of bias or, or siding to the argument it, it's fantastic to see um everyone from every walk of life or group or anything that you could possibly be ima- possibly imagine as a category being being represented i think that's really positive i think that's really positive because to be honest i i think even maybe five ten years ago five years ago if you do if mm-hmm. you told me that there were any any women involved at all i would have been shocked like I would have been massively shocked. So the fact that, you know, obviously it's got to go the right, it, there's a way to go. Um, but the fact that it's getting in the right direction is, is really encouraging. So Andy, yeah, I think um, you've talked a lot about um, the successes of kind of the philosophy you have around organising and building a positive, inclusive, sustainable model. I suppose where we're at at the moment, there's the obvious um, small issue of the pandemic. And I think it's what a, uh, what West Ham fans would say is typical West Ham that our greatest success on the pitch in years has come at a time when we can't physically be there to watch God it. Don't. So how do you how do you organise um, as a football supporters group without actually being able to do the thing that football supporters do and go to matches? Uh, it is. Um, it, it, it's really tough for me personally. This one, like, I'm almost. I don't know if I am completely, but I'm almost hoping West Ham get knocked out of the FA Cup. I don't know if I can take... I know we had this conversation, Tom, before, but I, I don't know if I can take us in a cup final not being able to go. I'm not, I don't know if I can take it. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I, and it would be... I mean, I know, I know it doesn't follow that just because you get to a cup final this year, you can't get to one next year. I understand that that doesn't follow. It does kind of feel like that, though. And it kind of feels like having... You know, I was born in 1983, so we haven't won any silverware to speak of. You know, I mean, we've won, I think, the Intertoto Cup, um, but we haven't won any silverware to speak of in my lifetime. And... It would be typical, wouldn't it, that we win silverware. <laughs> the one, you know, the one year in my lifetime when I cannot be part of it. I can't even have my friends around to watch the game. Um, so Don't on a personal level, I'll, I, I know, I know. Oh, no. Um, oh, no. So, you know, we talked earlier about those things that football brings for you, you know, your friendship and your, your camaraderie and your shared experiences. 
And yeah, you're right. You can't you, you can't get those at the minute. And I think it's also with your question about how, you know how do you keep your supporters group going? Um, it presents similar challenges because we rely so much on seeing people and speaking to people about our group. Um, you know, we would leaflet at every home game, and we can't you can't leaflet now. So I guess really you rely on. Um, finding alternative strategies like everyone has had to do across the pandemic and um, doing things like we're doing now, I suppose. Um, Keeping the conversation going in any way that you can by putting out um, articles on your website, finding interesting things to talk about on Facebook, uh, tweeting, you know, appearing on podcasts um, and uh, just praying, really, praying that the day arrives soon when we can actually get um, get back to being there in person. I've got a confession to make at this point. I actually haven't been able to go. I haven't actually brought myself to go to the new stadium yet. I know it's terrible, isn't it? Like, many, uh, there'd be many people who'd be standing a, a, alongside you saying that that's a good decision to make. Like, mm. I, I'm gonna. I, do you know what the funny thing was before the pandemic? I was actually saying to Tom, like, I'm this. This is a season. I'm gonna bite the bullet. I'm just gonna do it. <laughs> I'm just gonna rip yeah. the bandaid off. I'm gonna go. And. um yeah, and then coronavirus. So, like, and I'm like, now this is the second. Like, you know, I'm looking at you know a couple of seasons of not being able to to go. So, yeah, just mm. just typical, isn't it? And then we're doing really bloody yeah. well. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I've got um, my next question's a bit a bit of a downer, really. I think you've we've talked a lot, and I think we've got a really positive positive movement and we're dealing with whatever challenges are thrown in front of us and you're doing an amazing job of Hamish United my my slightly depressing question is all that hard work when we consider what we're faced with in terms of the money and the vested interests in the game is I suppose can football be saved and why do we not just all give up and find ourselves a nice non-league team to follow and we can see our friends and have a pint without all the bullshit around it. It's a good question. If everyone if everyone went to follow a non-league club, wouldn't they end up in the same position? Ooh. <laughs> um, I, I think I am um, firmly of the opinion, because I've given up so much time to this, I can't really be of any other opinion, but um, I am firmly of the opinion that uh, it can be saved and society in general can be saved. Um, and I think, um, monetization, capitalism, the constant pursuit of money that is our game at times will burst because it has to, it has to, if the only thing that you become um concerned with is the pursuit of more money you are going to sooner or later combust you have to because you're not going to have anything to keep feeding into the um you know the the fuel to propel you on that journey and the fuel ultimately is the people choosing to spend their money because of their emotional connection with the game and with their club So unless you pay attention to that emotional connection sooner or later, your fuel is going to run out. 
Um, now, we might not have reached that point, so it might not be any good for people in our lifetime because um, perhaps there is further to go on the journey before people get to that point and say, do you know what, sorry, I'm not spending any more money on this now because it's become a product that I don't like anymore. Perhaps we're not there yet, but I do believe we will get there. And I actually believe, you know, I don't want to say anything has been good about this pandemic because it hasn't. Um, but I always try to look for silver linings on clouds. And one of them, I think, is that having no fans in the stadium has demonstrated that you could not operate football without supporters. I think for the for the I've, I've had conversations with friends of mine who who don't go to football, but who watch religiously football on telly. And they have said that they have been less interested in watching football on telly because the spectacle of the game is not as interesting without seeing the fans as part of that game. Yeah, absolutely. So the, you know, let's let's call it what it is as a product. That product does not sell as well. That brand is not as strong unless you are including the stories of the people who are going to watch, the emotion of those people, the the um, the journeys of those people to get to that game, the atmosphere of those people. And so when, you know, when you see banners like football without fans is nothing, I actually think, I actually think there is a true sentiment in that, not just because we pay, but also because the, the spectacle. Now, there are other games out there that are good games. I mean, I, I love table tennis, but... Table tennis, I don't know. It doesn't. I don't think it'll ever quite have that tribal following and emotional connection and spectacle that football has. Um, and there are other sports where you could say the following is what makes the sport. So you look at you look at the difference between let's say darts and let's say say snooker. Um, both games, both could be described as games rather than sports. Both can be played by people with um, who don't have a whole range of components of fitness. Both rely on a you know tiny degrees of uh, of skill and accuracy and coordination. But for a lot of people, what makes darts is the fans. The fans they they go to darts purely to be part of that crowd and the bench. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, and and so I I think I think football does need the fans, um, and I think there will come a point where it realizes that it needs to um, pay more attention to those fans, even if the only goal, like you said earlier, Tom, even if it's a mutually beneficial thing, I think there will come a point where it realizes it has to pay more attention to them. Mm, definitely. I've got um, my final question there and Lauren you might have a few more uh, I think yeah well, I'd like to say thank you for, for giving up your time Andy to kind of speak to us and share kind of I think we and I think lots of organisations can learn a lot about how you you conduct yourself personally and how Hammers United conduct themselves as, a, as an organisation um, what next for Hammers United and what's what will success look like for Hammers United what will the end goal be when when if ever can you say you've achieved what you set out to what next is um is literally what next is in tomorrow or the next day and we're hoping that tomorrow or the next day the um 
the independent supporters committee that we've been working hard to set up will be will be ratified, will be publicised and, and will be ready to go. And I think what next in the short term is starting to engage with the club on some of the specifics that will make things better for West Ham fans and hopefully pushing for those specifics. What next in terms of making a success of Hammers United in general? We've always talked about trying to leave a legacy and trying to leave something with longevity and really what we see as a as a legacy and and something that holds longevity is two things that sit side in side by side those two things are a a seat at the table so to speak so that whoever is in charge at our football club will be forever um accountable to to the people that are, that truly own the football club you know um to the supporters so a seat at the table that is, that is forever guaranteed. But what needs to go along with the seat at that table, and this is why I think so many football clubs fall out of love with their owners, or football fans fall out of love with their owners, is that there has to be true clarity around what it is that you are actually trying to achieve when you get that seat at the table. Because if you go in there and you're having a conversation with those owners about wanting your football club to win more games or to be more successful as a football club, your discussion is fatally flawed from the outset. Sooner or later, your football club is going to experience a period of poor form. And you can't just base your relationship with your owners on whether or not the club is performing well on the pitch. Form, to a certain extent, cannot be controlled. I mean... We're talking about such fine margins in football about what makes or breaks your form on the pitch. And if you go in there with that agenda, you're always going to fall out with those people sooner or later because you're going you're gonna to think that their investment is flawed, their decisions on the pitch are flawed, they're, you know, they haven't done this, that or the other to get you winning games. Similarly, you can't go in there and say, right, we want to improve the the culture and the infrastructure and the experience. Because they're just going to say, what, what are you talking about? What do you mean? So to to um, to make that, that legacy work, what we are trying to design at the minute off the back of a, a survey that we launched um, a, a few weeks ago is we're trying to design some detailed principles. Principles whereby you are not talking specifics. So you're not saying one of our principles is to sell less popcorn. It's too specific. But what? why does popcorn frustrate people? What is the principle behind that that you could stick to when you make future decisions? And it can't be as simple as match day experience because it's too general. So what we are trying to define is, is, is what sits in between that where you can explain, right, when we get to the table and we want to have a discussion about the culture and the match day experience at our football club, what we are talking about is specifically X, Y, and Z that will lead us to discuss now, today, in today's meeting, that is going to lead on to popcorn. But the principle that you're going in there for those meetings, it has to be, they have to be clear because you have to be able to draw decisions back to those principles over time and you have to be able to get your ownership to understand why fans are 
wanting those things? Which principles are they trying to draw those decisions back to? So so our lasting legacy really is a, a seat at the table and a set of principles to govern the discussions when we're at that, you know, when we're sitting in that seat at the table. Amazing. Um, I don't actually have any more questions because like, yeah, that, that was, I think it was a really lovely way to end it actually, like looking to the future and being hopeful about the time we can actually be there again. And yeah, um, I just want to say a big thank you for giving up your time. And it's yeah, been, no worries. been really nice actually being able to talk about something that means a lot to me as well um, so I always say listeners like we Tom and I have totally indulged ourselves as well this evening <laughs> <laughs> no well, thanks very much for inviting me on I, I just enjoy talking about this stuff so you know I'm always happy to get these kind of invites um I've been invited for a completely different conversation tomorrow actually um, um I am a guest on Jim White's show on Talk Sport amazing <laughs> Well, oh, if you give, give requires give requires improvement a shout out. We might we might finally break into the old uh, elusive talk sport crowd. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Thank you again, Andy, for for giving up your time to speak to us. I found it very kind of insightful, and I think yeah, I think how football fans organise might not be a thing a lot of people always think about but I think there's a lots and lots of parallels and lots of lessons to be drawn from from your experiences and I've um, got no doubt we will be in the FA Cup final in an empty empty Wembley Stadium don't, so uh, don't yeah. don't oh. <laughs> I'll see you on a Zoom call for that yeah yeah <laughs> I know oh my goodness we'll go to a Zoom party or something we're going to have to I can't like I can't not be like I can't not have people even virtually around like it's not okay my flatmate doesn't care he hates football what do we do for the big you know if we win it where do we go for the victory parade oh god (laughs) (laughs) it can't happen it cannot it cannot happen it was it next up Man United please knock us out I'm sorry to say that I can't believe are you actually happy to have that on record (laughs) (laughs) anyway yeah thank you very much Andy we'll draw it to a close there Um, take care uh, we've been requires improvement and just want to say once again a big thanks to Andy um, I'm Lauren and we were hosted today by Tom and um, just so you know um, please follow us at requires pod on Twitter and you can listen to our podcast anywhere that you get them uh, SoundCloud Spotify Apple I whatever the hell they are um, yeah so find us wherever you get your uh, podcasts and take care and see you later everyone bye <laughs>